Howdy there, folks, and text the Black Pants Legion here on a very special podcast with one of my favorite co-workers. He's not Brian Blessed, but sometimes he sounds like him when he gets animated. He is the other end of the strategic stick at the think tank. He is one of the few people who knows what nuclear war means, how to wage one, and possibly how to win one. This is a man who can be called the master of disaster and knows more about neutrons than you ever will. Say good evening and good night and good day to my host and co-host today. You chose the Subricade Jack D. Ripper for this, which I'm still giggling at. But Dr. <laughs> David, welcome. Thank you very much, Tex. Pleasure to be on tonight. So uh, cheers to uh, our weird, wonderful profession in meeting each other. Uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of libation for anyone out there who occasionally imbibes such as I do. Our profession is one that is uh, frighteningly sobering and frequently has far too many close calls for us to ever even begin to process in this lifetime. But that is the strategic think tank game. Now, when it comes to our group, there are people like Dr. Bryn, who are the master of asymmetrical warfare or irregular strategic dilemmas, where you can basically say, if you're fighting the Leviathan, you don't have to fight like a Leviathan, and you can attack them like a dachshund and tear someone down. But on the other end of the stake, if things go bad enough, the big countries all have one thing in common. And that is they can go to the mattresses with world enders, a.k.a. nukes. And that is your wonderful little garden you've cultivated. So where do you think we should begin? Well, first, just like to say that, yeah, absolutely. A little a little libation is absolutely necessary in a uh, profession, which is all too sobering at times. But um, but yeah, where, where, where in the secret, highly irradiated garden to begin? Uh I suppose one thing that's that's quite topical and has been for some time now is drawing this distinction between uh, general nuclear war and limited nuclear war, because it's one of those con conflations that always pops up in media, very commonly pops up in popular culture, and justifiably so because it speaks to our big fear of of the world ender of the of the the war the literally the war to end all wars. And that is kind of the general nuclear war. Uh, that's where you hit, you've hit the point of such a complete breakdown of international order that you're exchanging counter value, what we would call counter value strikes. So you're hitting each other's cities. You're hitting each other's centers of population, of commerce, of culture, and of governance as well, where you're basically trying to just take the other guy off the board, pick up your ball and go home. Uh, that represents such a a small fraction of, of kind of nuclear thinking these days, but it's the one that we always hear about because it's the big dramatic one. And so what I would uh, say is actually a much more interesting thing to talk about, and it's the thing I specialize more in, is the concept of limited nuclear war. And this is where sort of Herman Kahn's idea of the ladder of escalation comes in, where by the time, you know, the first few rungs are actually going to be conventional. They're going to be some great geopolitical crisis. And the first time it gets nuclear, it's not going to be when somebody, you know, deletes New York with eight A-bombs. Uh, it's going to be when someone uses probably quite a small yield nuclear weapon, either as a strategic signal, uh, maybe even when there's, you know, no. The, the most extreme end of this is actually using something like a a sub-kiloton nuke and just detonating one 
uh, outside of any kind of national space, and that would represent just kind of crossing the threshold. First time since 45 a nuke's been used in anger. That alone has the potential to have, like, significant political... So so the starter gun of nuclear weapons. Yeah, your starter gun equivalent. There's a reason why even NATO has 0.3 kiloton nuke, nuke settings on the books. So when it comes down to the nuclear escalation or the ladder of pain... I, I know that most people out there, when it comes down to nuclear war, they think Dr. Strangelove, they think we'll meet again, which I know you have a fun story for, which I will ask for later. They they hear their Vera Lynn, see their dancing bombers and wait for the end of the world. But then people also get the idea of that movie War Games, where the computer just does a heavy lift plan and decides to obliterate everything like shaking an Etch-A-Sketch. In between, most people don't realize that there are scenarios that are thought out by war planners for 50 warheads, 200 warheads, 2,000 warheads, 5,000 warheads, and then the full kit and caboodle, everything we got. And it starts with very small, as you point out, strategic choices, reminding people you have nukes, using a nuke in a strategic manner on a tactical or theater scale target. I hit an army in the field. I stop and advance. I blow up a submarine base. I prevent a launch by destroying the launcher and its command staff. And then going all the way up to your country is now past tense. Smoking craters are now your current livelihood. Please go away. You have been glassed. And the thing that I want people to understand is that nuclear war does not necessarily always need to, in theory or design, escalate to a total use scenario where you expend all the warheads. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, the the scenarios in which you would actually go straight to the shooting caboodle are are so rare that they kind of fall under uh, what what uh, JFK termed the the trinity of accident uh, ac- was it accident madness or misinterpretation um you know nobody would intend to do this and yeah these kind of discrete strikes and actually one one of the things i keep reading in in academia and i'm pretty sure this is just a case of wishful thinking is the whole nuclear weapons have no military function well i mean for one thing i would count preventing war is actually the ultimate military function, but we'll kind of leave that one on the shelf for now. Um, actually, there is a great deal that you can of, of strategic solution, uh, strategic problems to which the solution may be a, uh, a big boom. And in that, in that sense, you know, you mentioned yourself, submarine bases. Submarine bases are incredibly hardened infrastructures to which nothing short of a ground burst application of several hundred kilotons of force is going to solve. Yeah, that's one thing you guys found out during World War II was trying to fly Lancasters over the subpens and dropping increasingly powerful bombs from higher altitude to not only get the kinetic shock, but the explosive and penetrative value where you needed it to. And you found out you could take out a cell of a subpen dock at a time at extreme cost and risk of manpower, requiring inordinate resources, inordinate planning, and hoping you got lucky. 
because it's an unguided munition. Nuclear weapons remove that risk and allow you to hit a whole submarine fleet while it's at refueling, re-anchor, rearmament, and take it out. There is no such thing as a submarine that takes a nuclear weapon very well, as, as seen at Crossroads, where we were like, wow, everything turned into beer cans at the same time. Save for a few old dreadnoughts, but they don't make them like they used to. Yeah. Now, when it comes to nuclear weapons, I know a lot of people don't have an understanding of doctrine. Would you like to walk us through the changes of doctrine from where nuclear weapons were at the start of their inception in World War II as just another weapon of greater value versus where they are now as inherently a strategic weapon with some tactical applications? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so... To kind of to to start with, you have the the original era, the the nuclear era, the first sort of nuclear age. Often that term is used to apply to the whole Cold War. Uh, I kind of think of it more as sort of the period between 1945, getting up to the late 1950s. Uh, there's a few ways you can maybe mark its end. The Soviet Union getting a H bombs really as good as any. Um, the, during this first nuclear age, it's all about experimentation. And, and oh boy, did these lads experiment. Uh, because a, a combination of things has had going on. First, there's a profound ignorance, even amongst uh, scientists, about just what radiation does and uh, and how how the bad fucky-wuck affects uh, us meatbags uh, to the point where, you know, the, the, the U.S. Army cheerfully started doing war games in the, in the Nevada deserts. Uh, where they would set off kind of an, an atomic bomb at ground level, say like 20, 25 miles away, and have guys in trenches and they'd be sort of measuring kind of successive effect. Okay, a trench actually takes out kind of X percentage of the blast effects. Uh, you know, this, this means that kind of fortifications are still useful if they're a certain distance away. And one of the things that ultimately gets kind of measured out of this, and the same with measuring, um, the lifespans of, of people who were in Hiroshima and Nagasaki is we start to get more data. And as the 50s progresses, we get a better idea of why these weapons are different. Because before, during this period and kind of the, the early part of this, it's just considered a quantitative shift in warfare rather than a qualitative one. And the other factor in this thinking is also the brutalization of, of kind of the Second World War. By the time you get to 1945, deleting cities is just something you do it's you know strategic bombing is just an accepted part of the war and when you're thinking about how to prosecute a strategic air campaign the only difference an atomic bomb makes is using japan as, as a perfect example here um so what you're saying is instead of having a thousand planes a reasonable amount of risk to the crew although air defenses over japan weren't certainly weren't what they could have been um Months of organization, ordnance, fuel coming out of the wazoo, coordination of strike groups over various air bases, sometimes in different islands, all of this pre-computer. You know, let's not underestimate the, the immense logistical task of organizing a thousand bomber raid in 1944-45. What you're saying now, we can do it with one plane, one bomb. You know, what, what stuns people at the beginning or what what's people see the implications of the atomic bomb at the beginning is it's capable is its capacity for efficiency rather than its qualitative devastating difference that this is somehow you know 
the the kind of the dead hand of the reaper and mankind better start behaving itself. It's more just, hey, look, we can do more with less now, which is the acme of what technology is all about, right? Indeed. And it's one of those things where at that point in time, especially when you look back at, say, MacArthur and Curtis LeMay, and you find in Korea, they have this idea of, well, if we had 20 nuclear weapons, we could achieve X or Y. And a lot of people love to look back and go, wow, they're insane. And I go, right, but at that point in time, that was normal thinking. And these guys came up from an era where doing more with less was considered to be not only highly intelligent, but highly laudable. It was putting less people at risk. And I'm not trying to defend their want to go full thermonuclear over a war as a good or a bad thing in the modern historical lens. But I am asking people to understand that back then, that was more or less an expected reaction. And I think you would have seen that exact same reaction from anybody who was from that period of time. It, if you had Bomber Harris back then in charge of prosecuting that war, Bomber Harris wouldn't have asked. He just would have done it and then would have written some little whimsical speech about like, well, we had to try, you know, it was very different back then. And just that's how it was. We have guys who asked for permission that's different. But Bomber Harris would not have asked you why, he would have asked you how many and by when. Exactly. Bomber <laughs> Harris was, in the strategic studies world, like a cab driver for explosives. He was just like, how much by when? And just back the dump trucks up to it. Like, that was his whole approach, was, the city needs to go away? Okay, no problem. And it becomes a logistics quandary. Not really a strategic one. It's how do we get this many tons of explosives reliably over target and release them? Damn the consequences. Because to him, and much like many other people throughout history, like General Sherman, you have a mindset of total war being understood. Whereas some people do not understand the scope of total war and they start thinking of things in very limited means. Because they have either their hands tied or they have political ramifications they're trying to operate inside, whether that's from within their own government or thinking about a post-war security state or what have you. But then there are people who just think, my job is to make things go away. These are the tools I possess, and these are the most efficient tools at hand. Now, we do say that in the by the late 50s, especially when the Russians start getting into uh the really big stuff, and they start building, you know, their own their own teller devices, and they start building their own giant, giant bombs. Of course, culminating with Tsar Bomba. I think it's worth noting that in the Western world, we started developing smaller warheads. We started developing smaller ways to use nuclear weapons at a more reliable era. So much so that science fiction, like Starship Troopers has mention of nuclear weapons that are unguided, shoulder-carried, and disposable. And people think, wow, that is whimsical 1950s thinking. And I go, look up the M28 and M29 Davy Crockett or the W-54 warhead, and you will see, wait a second, this was actually quite normalized once. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you mentioned the Davy Crockett. Uh this this is something a weapon system I I find infinitely fascinating because I'll tell you text right I I've read a lot of strategic theory I've read Clausewitz I've read umpteen sort of field manuals and U.S. Uh, declassified kind of nuclear um, nuclear balance reviews I've 
pursued the Dead Sea Scrolls, and in none of my research can I find a strategic quandary to which the solution is an atomic RPG. Yeah, I Davy Crockett's just one of those things where it's like, all right, I I have I have a bazooka that can do the equivalent of like what was it twenty tons of TNT? It's a, it's a micro nuke. Yeah. It is it is a micro nuke. It is like barely 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 the threshold for fissile material. Yeah, it is a it's, micro nuke. It's a micro nuke relative to how far you you are away from the thing. When it's <laughs> well, that's that's the issue. Is I I did look up the firing range. I don't know that off my head, so I had to look it up. The M twenty eight's effective firing range at max is one point two five miles. Now imagine looking a mile away and then going, "I'm going to shoot it with an unguided nuke." And that the problem is, is by the time it hits there, you have not released your finger from the trigger. You are standing up with a tripod, having fired a football at somebody that is chock full of nuke. This is going to be a bad day. These things were self-annihilating in the extreme. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even if you had the deep misfortune as a crew member to survive using the thing... Uh, you're going to be in a state where you wish you hadn't, you know, not, not to get particularly graphic about it, but the, yeah, the, the, the effects are not going to be much fun. Um, and, and again, there's just, there's just so, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have a long life in service because it's, it's out of, it comes in a very sort of experimental stage and it comes from a position of conventional inferiority on the part of NATO, which is why NATO experiments with smaller nukes. It's why they experiment with uh, with a lot more kind of varied solutions to to kind of different tactical and operational level problems because they know that they're going to be outnumbered, or certainly there's a perception that they're going to be massively outnumbered uh, by by the Red Army in Europe. So these things are seen as kind of force multipliers. It is the original kind of offset strategy, really. You know, just using Kind of nuclear weapon. This this starts coming in in the sort of the, in the fifties and and latterly the sixties as a way of potentially offsetting uh, the the superiority of tank columns and that kind of thing. But it's and it, it's it's the beginning of of what I would call modern doctrine as well. You've kind of gone past that uh, that okay nukes are just sort of better conventional weapons, and you've went a bit beyond the mutually assured, like instant mutually assured annihilation uh or mutually assured destruction there's kind of a period in the mid 50s with the Eisenhower administration where their policy is effectively what's known as the glass wall policy where it's like if one soviet boot sets a foot over the internal german border the soviet union's gone and it's the kind of doctrine you can only really operate when you've got nukes and the other guy doesn't I agree with that. And I, I was just thinking on the nature of like the little feller tests where, you know, they, they set up, I think it was on a Jeep or something, one of these Davy Crockett's and they were like, yeah, yeah. we tested it. It was fine. And I was like, really? And they were like, no more testing. <laughs> Good enough. It, yeah. it would work. It would work once. And I could see something like that. Anyone out there who's listening, who's had to dig a foxhole for your time in the military. Anyone out there who has served and knows what it's like to have to dig a foxhole, I'm sure there was a time where you thought, man, I wish I had a nuclear bazooka. No, you didn't. None of you ever thought that. Most of you thought, man, it would be awful if XYZ happened. But imagine at a platoon level 
being issued a nuclear weapon launcher that is unguided and has a range of as far as you can see on a foggy day. It is not a good idea. Now, what's really interesting is even though these tests kind of suggested this was a suicidal deployment of nuclear weapons and a horrible nightmare scenario, we didn't stop there. There were the development of, you know, special attack demolition munitions with the ABLE teams and those guys. There was also the development of nuclear landmines, which if if any of you are sitting there going like, thinking that nukes are always secure. There was a time where we said we need to build small nuclear warheads and then bury them and walk away and just hope nothing fell on them or, you know, cause them to become upset. And yes, there were more safety uh, protocols in effect to make sure they weren't, but still rather grim as an idea is just buried bombs. Um, and then further than that, we also got into atomic Annie, the idea of just using normal shells and putting nukes in them, and hoping they survived acceleration without going off. We had some very fun times in munitions development all throughout history. Now, when it comes down to escalation of nukes, I know that things kind of change after the 60s, because the Russians start getting their own nuclear weapons, we have our own nuclear weapons, we both get into ICBMs, and you start seeing test ban treaties. You start to see certain limitations and agreements to where by the 80s you see SALT 1 and 2, and you see this whole idea of making things go away. I know we've come very close at multiple times to almost exercising nuclear authority, whereas on one end the Cuban Missile Crisis was a lot closer than people realize. But on the other end as well, Able Archer 83, where the only reason the Soviet Union did not fire was because one guy in the control room said, that is a glitch, they are not shooting at us. There are many scenarios in which nuclear weapons can be accidentally used. Now, do you feel that we are more or less secure now that we have had all those close touches with nukes? Uh, with the... I mean, you could spend, you could spend a whole podcast just talking about the kind of the near misses and why they were misses i mean that that's one thing that's great comfort right that there's never been a hit but um but with regard to kind of the modern world now uh in some ways no no i, I don't think we are particularly more secure in terms of the in terms of the number of players in the game uh we are not more secure because there's more of them and just larger larger n means more variables which means kind of more chance of it happening but also there are there are three i would say there's three discrete nuclear doctrines out there uh these these are kind of a bit different for each country and different countries have operationalized these doctrines at different times uh but broadly speaking you've got the uh catalytic posture which is where nukes are pretty much just a, a threat. Uh, so we could say that at this point in time, Iran operates quite a catalytic doctrine. You don't actually need a force structure for to get the benefit of kind of a catalytic doctrine. Uh, because what you're ultimately trying to do is actually use the threat of, of going nuclear as a leverage in of itself. Uh, and you might do this because you're not ready to to actually um, fully opera operationalize a capability. Israel adopted this position prior to 1967, um, and South Africa, for its short-lived and interesting 
dalliance with nuclear weapons operated a catalytic posture. Uh, the second is sort of assured retaliation, which is kind of the the more sort of high level strategic position. It's kind of where most Western thought is by and large at the minute, uh, with with some exceptions. Certainly, this is the British position anyway, where you. A retaliation does not need to be instant as long as it's inevitable, and that's enough to guard you against existential threats. Uh, India takes this position as well, although they're slowly changing over time. Again, China's the same. Carry on. What I was going to ask is, while we've talked about the inevitability, I should say, of retaliatory strike, but some nations have a very hard edge and we brought something up interesting here a lot of people don't know this but south africa actually had a successful nuclear weapons program and then voluntarily disarmed it and it was built in relatively amazing security and silence and it was a completely largely indigenous i should say not completely because there's always help in some extremis especially when it comes down to the notion of physics because doctors tend to travel and knowledge tends to gestate and move around. So naturally, not everything is completely homegrown. But you have a nuclear weapons program that is built in the dark. And most of the Western and Eastern world has no idea this happened. South Africa did make a nuclear weapons program that was successful in making a nuclear weapon and then voluntarily disarmed it. Now, there are many other states that we mentioned, including some that may theoretically have weapons and have never confirmed them, like the state of Israel. And there are some countries that are pursuing nuclear weapons, like Iran, which have the capability to do so. They certainly have the capability with technology. They certainly have the capability with know-how. They certainly have the glut of scientists required in one place to make this knowledge possible. And they certainly have the machining and technology and maybe not the centrifuges at this time, but all the tools, tactics, and training are there to use them. But when it comes down to nuclear strategy, I think it's interesting you also mentioned the UK. The letters of last resort, which is probably the most amazing evolution of nuclear theory of the 20th century. Would you mind explaining to our listeners what that is and how it got there? Uh, yeah, it'd be, be a pleasure. Uh, the, le- the letters of last resort are, are part of the British strategic chain of command. Uh, the evolved when we started um, moving from a submarine to a submarine-based from a bomber-based platform. And what it involves is the first duty of a British Prime Minister, I mean the first. He is elected, he is driven to Downing Street before he goes to meet the Queen, he is shuff- uh, shuffled off to a room and the most senior civil servant in the country hands him a sheaf of paper and a pen and tells him to write four letters. Each identical, each for the captain of one of the vanguard boats, one of which will be at, time- at sea on constant at sea patrol at any given time. And it's the bearer of our nuclear deterrence. If the captain of the submarine on patrol has reason to think that the United Kingdom has been destroyed, met with, met, met with destruction, the first, um, by the way, uh, check on that kind of list of things is popping up and making sure that the BBC radio, morning radio program is broadcasting. If uh, if the if the if the breakfast show isn't on, that's the first 
alarm bell. Yeah. Like it's just off. like, hey, hey, good morning, UK is an on. Well, time to warm up the missiles. <laughs> Basically, yep, time to time to put them on warm stack, boys. Uh, and then they'll attempt other verification techniques and so on. But if it gets to a point where it's credibly believed that, that something has destroyed the UK, he will open up a safe and take out this letter and follow the instructions on it. That is it. That is the extent of the British uh, so, limitation <laughs> on... on new, sorry, I tell you, there's two keys as well. The captain right. and his, and his uh, first officer uh, have both need to act to, to access the safe in which the letters of last resort are kept. Uh, they, they both need a key. Uh, that's, so, that's it. So that, that is the height of sort of safeguards. So, so you guys used to have the nuclear triad like everyone did. Then by just need of cost and efficiency, you move to just submarines. You have one submarine that's on patrol at all times with nuclear weapons on board. And then if Wallace and Gromit go, we missed the Brecky morning show, they take their keys out, go to the nuclear safe, get the key, blow open it like the great Karnak, pull out the letter, and then fold it open. And it's like, drop a few on the cherries. And you're like, well, okay, yeah. <laughs> click. Yeah, basically, yes. It's it's the most phenomenal example of of high of just trust in civil military re, uh, relations that i know of because realistically even with two keys one guy can subvert the other you know on a, on a submarine we've we've all watched red october factions happen yeah so, you know that this this is something that can happen but yeah by and large they will take out the letters and no no prime minister has ever um revealed what they wrote in their their letter of last resort um well, with one exception, Margaret Thatcher, but that, that, of course, it's Margaret Thatcher, and, and you absolutely know what, what she has said. Uh, but by and large, it's usually some variation of, um, retaliate immediately against whatever the most likely enemy was at that point. Let's be honest here, it's almost, almost always been Soviet Union or then Russia. Uh, the other one is sail to an American port and basically, uh, put yourself over to the US Navy. Sail to a Commonwealth port, probably Canada, maybe Australia, and essentially put yourself under the command of the Royal Australian or Royal Canadian Navy. Or and this is this is the one that always gets me. Exercise your best judgment, which has to be the single biggest dereliction of uh, of duty I can imagine for any prime minister or world leader, and I can only hope that uh, none of them have ever written that. But. I mean, it has a certain amount of sense to it, but it just seems like the biggest buck parts imaginable. Yeah, just, you know what? You seem like you know what you're doing. You've been through a lot of training. Just shoot it. Don't, whatever. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, it's it's kind of funny. Now, the the thing that's interesting is we we need to mention your your oldest enemies, uh, the the ones that you probably want to use the nukes on, uh, France. Now, yeah, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> when it comes down to France... I know a lot of people give the French shit, but they maintain probably one of the strongest counter-value leading, bleeding, angry edges there is. And most people don't know this, but the, the French are some of the few people who, one, have stockpiled neutron bombs, two, made enough gravity bombs to put, their put on their whole air force at one point, where it was just like, oh, you think you can take us out? I hope you can catch 200 mirages heading east with four bombs each. 
and then three decided that that wasn't enough and then made tracked nuclear launchers, which were then at division and brigade scale called the Pluton, which, you know, named for Lord of the Underworld. Now, they they have distributed nuclear weapons like beads at Mardi Gras. And if if I am not mistaken, the de Gaulle stance on countervalue still stands. How many people are Paris worth? Answer, 750 million. Fuck around and find out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the French, um, when you said earlier about the, the, the British kind of maintained a triad, actually, we never did. We only ever had one arm at a time. Uh, we had bombers. Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be nice. I'm, I'm trying oh, to, really? I'm trying, I'm trying to say you built a triad like Wallace and Gromit build a train set one step yeah. at a time and at full speed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and we were, we were too broke for much else, honestly. Well, yeah, uh, it's, it, it also uh, sounds like very much UK government planning where it's like, we just finished building these silos, but now we've really thought about it and they're kind of an eyesore. And what if we just use these bombers instead? And they're like, you know, these bombers are great and all but we're not really sure what if we just use these submarines instead and i'm sure there's just some guy who's just finished turning the last rivet on what he's built and he's like fuck off <laughs> just <laughs> sitting there having that moment like why <laughs> oh absolutely i mean we never really bothered with a full kind of land-based version even because we're a small island it's not hard yeah. to counter force the uk uh so so that was really a non-starter for us and this was before mobile uh, strategic weapons kind of came into their own. That's a different story today. You see it with kind of North Korea and Pakistan. But the French, the French always went all, all in on this. And this is one of those, uh, manifestations of 1940 syndrome where they are absolutely, they, they take it upon themselves to be self-sufficient as far as is possible. It isn't quite a hundred percent self-sufficiency. Uh, but, by and large, when it comes to the strategic deterrence in the Cold War, the French want to rely on one people themselves. Uh, so they have the, as you say, you know, they, they have the force to frap doctrine, which is basically deterrence of the strong by the weak. And the, the idea is you, you, you will burn the equivalent of France into your enemy. And the, the Pluton's a wonderful example of this because if you look at the range of it, as you said, 10 kilometers, this has a bonus advantage if you get to nuke West Germany into the bargain. Yeah, the the thing is, is that it's their whole approach to things is it's not my problem until I make it yours. And it's with enough force to like just sandblast, if not burn with a cigarette, everything on the map that isn't them. And a lot of countries have seen the value of this or don't see it as a game. You have countries like the People's Republic of China, where their nuclear policy is actually pretty reasonable. It's just, they're here, we have them, don't make us use them. Because they have more than enough conventional arms to reach out and do all the damage they need to. But the nukes are there in case. It's a very kind of copycat of an American-ish system, though certainly more lacking and limited in many ways from detection to delivery and force projection until more recent. Um, they also lack the good submarines like we have for that sort of deployment. And as well, a lot of their stuff is in ICBMs. Now, I know that there's a lot of movies about nuclear war. And I wanted to ask you, which what is your favorite movie about nuclear war? Uh, so if I can just just make a quick point about China, and then I'll absolutely answer that. Um, sure. The the thing to remember with China as well is that 
historically there's a sort of strategic contempt for nuclear weapons in Chinese thinking, which is changing as they're as they're becoming uh, more of a great power and kind of expanding beyond the uh, you know they're, they're looking at projecting their influence kind of beyond that beyond their, their land borders and now beyond the first island chain. Uh, but also, what you have with China is is an extreme case of the opposite of of Britain, where the civil military relations are incredibly weak. Uh, the reason that China has traditionally opted for ICBMs is because they can keep the missiles in one place and the warheads way the hell over there, under complete um, domestic political control. How that's going to mesh going forward with submarines is is an interesting one. Uh, is an interesting question because you kind of, on some level, you have to have a little bit of delegative if you want a functioning submarine force. And they might go for kind of a more technologically based structure. They might take the Soviet approach of making everyone an officer um, and just putting commissars on board. We'll, we'll yet to see, but that's going to be an interesting one to, to see how that plays out. Um, but with regard to movie, favorite favorite nuclear movie, there's a couple of obvious ones. I'm actually going to come out of left field here. I'm going to say um, George Clooney's Peacemaker. I saw that. Yeah, that was that was okay. That was an okay movie. It was very okay. There was there was one scene in it particularly, and this one scene wins it for me. And it is the only time I've ever seen this represented in media. And it's they disarm a nuclear bomb how I would disarm a nuclear bomb. Just knock a panel off and yeah. and make it make it not go f- full fizzile. Just make it fizzle instead. Yeah. Knock a panel off and call it a day. Because if there is a clock, why would you trust it? For one thing. Yes. Um. But also, if you not like, there's a, there's a great line from one of the worst war movies of all time. It's uh, it's one I've mentioned on the podcast before. Uh, the the second Guns of Navarone's movie. But w- there's a phenomenal line in it, which is. It's easy to make explosives go off. The trick is not being there when they do. Nuclear weapons kind of work the opposite way. They're actually incredibly difficult to get to go off. And to get an atomic reaction, you need a, a jacket of high explosives to to detonate near as damn it instantaneously, sort of within bits of nanoseconds of each other, to implode correctly, to pr- produce kind of a, a, a fissile chain reaction to give you a to give you a blast. You you take a pocket knife and cut out one section of that, it's not gonna work. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where people don't realize this, but explosive lensing was one of the biggest issues we had in developing nuclear weapons in the first place. It's why we had to do giant tests with huge piles of TNT shaped every which way, trying to figure out how to do this, how to generate the force necessary to make this collapse and then fissile reaction happen. Now, the thing that's interesting is you also point out in The Peacemaker, like, I I think it's kind of fun that these guys are running around with just, like, I don't know, a Radio Shack Timex kind of watch hooked up to something that's really a few hundred million dollars worth of equipment. And I'm going, that's why most of these weapons, when they have a detonator detonator switch, typically have, for reliability's sake, just a key. You you have a key, and you have a very, very big generator somewhere in the middle or a capacitor. A lot of this isn't timed because, well, you know, clocks run down. <laughs> they, they, they can they kind of fuck up. This was actually the problem with the... Uh 
the nuclear landmine that you mentioned earlier, which was part of NATO's um, response in the Cold War, the uh, the the British peak Wallace and Gromit solution to the problem that you get when you bury a landmine in Germany is that it gets cooled in the North German plain. I love this story. Please, please keep. I know where you're, what you're going to yeah. say, but I love this story. <laughs> so, so cold, cold has a nasty habit. If any of you are from kind of the northern reaches, of sapping the hell out of battery life. So to counter, so the British came up with an idea. Well, okay, we need to bury a nuclear device. We're going to do it when the Russians are actually coming. We need it to have at least 72 hours, 48 to 72 hours worth of power to make sure we can actually, you know, reliably detonate this thing. Well, how are we going to do it in an age where battery technology is rudimentary at best? Well, we'll we'll just keep it warm and that'll preserve what battery life we've got. Okay, how are we going to keep it warm? We will build a hen coop and put chickens on it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it'll insulate it. And you know yeah. what? It worked. I mean, you just know somebody looked like I'm. I'm as as a good you know Englishman should. I'm sitting uh, right with with a view to my back garden. There is a shed, and that's where I think up all my crazy stuff. Right, and this was a case of an Englishman thinking up crazy stuff in his shed, which is pretty much how we win wars around here. I I know it's okay now. Now, as far as as far as movies with nukes, I we we're both huge fans of Doctor Strangelove. Um, probably what I would say, Kubrick's second best film. Um, I I think I loved it. I still love it today. I I think as I get older, I like Barry Lyndon more, just because every shot of Barry Lyndon is a painting. Like it's just a painting. You're like, oh my god, the composition is so good. But Doctor Strangelove is a movie that was so accurate in its portrayal of a B-52 arming and releasing a nuclear weapon that Air Force sensors almost stopped the film from being released because he guessed a lot of shit right just by talking with people who had worked around these things and making some logical assumptions. Um, that Dr. Strangelove is a very accurate view of how a nuclear war could have accidentally started even back then, even though the air force said it is our position that this could never happen. But what if someone did? And there's a reason why they had a site program. There's a reason why site screening in these programs was so heavy and so hard was because, yes, it was entirely possible for someone to issue a go on Operation Chrome Dome or any of these other projects and then have a nuclear war start because it was on standby for in case one started. All you would have to do is miss a check-in on purpose, by design, and it's on like Donkey Kong. This was an early era of deterrence, of keeping hundreds of planes moving around, if not being refueled, proceeding to a wait point, coming back from a wait point in orbits constantly to at this least the offer price deterrence. You pay for a high level of readiness. Um, the higher the level of readiness, the lower the, the the number of and robustness of safeguards you can have in place. And this is why kind of that French doctrine, which is the third doctrine, the assured, uh, sorry, the, the asymmetric escalation doctrine, which is where you use nukes to offset the fact that you're conventionally inferior, is robust 
and there's a lot of states who are in inferior conventional positions with approximately superior conventional enemies adopt it. Pakistan's a, a key kind of example of this. Um, you can have higher readiness, but it's going to cost you. You know, in this sense, uh, countries might, might delegate, as was the case with, with Jack Ripper. He was a, a relatively mid-level general in the Air Force, but could had the authority to initiate a massive nuclear first strike against the the Russians. Uh, and in the kind of modern day analogy to that is the concern that we have that um, at it's possible that kind of at uh, lower levels, we might see nuclear weapons dispersed to relatively low ranked, say Pakistani field commanders. If, certain red lines that the the government in Islamabad have outlined are crossed um because yeah that that's that's and when one of one of my my favorite incidents of well you can try but it doesn't always work uh the US actively despite not recognizing Pakistan as a nuclear state because it's out with the the non-proliferation treaty quietly agreed to supply permission action links to uh to, to supply the kind of the, the nuclear force structure. A permissive action link is basically the thing that generates a nuclear code. It's, it's kind of where we get that idea from. And this is kind of the equivalent of sort of the parents not being happy that the kid is having sex, but they'd rather they have it safe if they must. And there's no evidence to this day that these things were, that they did anything with these things other than throw them in the nearest dumpster. Uh, because at one point, credibility requires a certain amount of danger. It's Thomas Schelling's idea of the threat that leaves something to chance. So, you know, you, you look about this this period, this uh, kind of strange love period, The the uh, both sides are on absolute hair-trigger readiness. They've got flights of, of sort of continuously patrolling bombers ready to get the go order at any time. And the cost for that at this time is that you need to delegate responsibility for significant nuclear forces relatively far down the chain of command. And I think it's kind of interesting because a lot of people, at least in the West, believe that, you know, if a nuclear war happens, the DEFCON count has to go down and then the presidents on the plane are going to the bunker or in the war room, whatever you think it looks like. And then someone gets on the phone and then they call NORAD and then sack NORAD if this is back while Strategic Air Command was still a thing. And you call them and you go... I want to blow up blah, 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 because they blew up blah, blah, blah. And then you have to give the codes. You have to crack the biscuit. Everyone reads their thing off. Everyone sits there and holds hands as then the strike is authorized. And then it goes. What people don't realize is there are countries out there which have taken nuclear weapons authority and distributed it down to much lower levels as either an insulation against decapitation strikes which may destroy the command and control of a nation. And so being worried about that, they want to leave some nuclear authority in lower hands. A great example of that is, of course, the letters of last resort, where it's like, oh, hey, if you can't get us on the horn, do what you must. You have our nuclear response and you will do the right thing. Here's here's our stated response to those things. Or... You will have, um, I do know the Soviet Union did have in its various doctrines being quite okay with much lower level commands having access to stuff like SCUD, which is quite nuclear capable. The, the, the Soviet example is really, really interesting and it really highlights 
the the fact that there is, there is sort of a canon of nuclear thinking in the West, which is not replicated uh, in the East at all, uh, specifically by the Russians, also by China for reasons kind of we we touched on earlier, and it's because at, on one level. Soviet thinking regarded these as just other weapons. It below sort of the, I would say probably be, below the kind of hundred kiloton to two hundred kiloton level. Uh, the Soviet Union never really left the whole. Yeah, this is just a quantitative answer to a tactical question, and it really fits into actually the. If you ever read Soviet doctrine, they have a very mathematical approach to to war making. Problems have solutions which can be quantified. You know, the, the solution to a dug-in battalion of infantry with armoured support is X motor infantry rifle with X tank company, and so on and so forth. And and uh, training was done really with this sort of quite equation-based attitude. So, you know, hey, if you've got X amount of dug-in there, then yeah, okay, it's, it's appropriate to use a nuclear weapon of this range, of this scale, of this type, um, especially when it comes to the Navy. Um where where it was quite clear that kind of allied naval supremacy in the Atlantic exists, how does that offset by nuclear weapons, basically? Yeah, unguided nuclear torpedoes. I mean, that's that is a crazy subject in itself. Is you look at Soviet weapons design, and they have like a torpedo that will go very quickly, like a hundred miles in a straight line, and then is just the mother of all bombs, just and you know could wipe out a whole carrier force, and you're like, what? Why is it unguided? And they're like, well, they might be able to jam it. <laughs> so it just, don't worry about it. It goes straight true and normal till it doesn't. <laughs> what, why, why is it unguided? Why does it need to be guided? Yeah. You, We've got plenty it's, more in the tube. Yeah, it's, it's an area target weapon. It's, it's one of those Absolutely. things where it, it, a lot of people don't understand, but a nuclear weapon doesn't have to literally be even remotely near a target to make the target not want to be there. If you have a nuke that goes off even 20 miles off target of your fleet, you are going to take some damage and you are likely not to operate the fleet any further in that direction until you find out what just happened. It can absolutely shape your strategic response and your reach in things because nukes are terrifying. And when you think about a nuclear torpedo, for instance, going off, at the shallow mouth of a harbor or within the shoreline of a large city. The damage that would be done is catastrophic. And so a lot of these weapons exist out there that people don't really know about. Now we've talked about some of the weird oddballs, nuclear torpedoes. We've also talked about the W-54 or the M-28, M-29, Davy Crockett. There's also another interesting one that was kind of brought up with the W-54, which is the SADM, the Special Atomic Demolition Device. That, that, little, that little backpack of a bomb, which is really what people are thinking of when they talk about suitcase nukes or briefcase nukes. The SADM is, is not that big. It's quite heavy, but it's small enough to tie to someone and parachute out of an airplane with for nuclear sabotage. And yes, that is a term that is real. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're if you're at a point where everything's on the table, why would you not think about that? It's in terms of investment relative to outcome, it's damn near as efficient as it gets. And it's also utilizing some something which um, which the likes of Hamas, Hezbollah, ISIS have understood is that if 
you know, human beings are the best smart weapons out there. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where every nation has its special forces, and special forces are trained to seek out and eliminate high-value targets. That is their job. Their job is to be extremely asymmetrical in the deployment of very accurate and very surgical applications of force and violence. It is their job to decapitate an enemy force. It is their job to destroy a bridge. It is their job to cripple a communications network. A nuclear warhead in the Cold War was just another tool for that. And there were teams that trained to use them. That is to say to run up, put that somewhere, and either sit with it till it went off by training or to set a timer and run away. And I would estimate, at least from the research I've done and what I know about these guys, they probably would have sat with the bomb the whole time. There is no escaping from that. Uh, no, no escaping from that. And also just the, the psychology of, of special forces where the mission comes first at all times. Uh, there probably would have been a, an attitude of kind of, no, let's, let's kind of see the mission through, make sure it gets done. But as you say, there's probably no escaping from it anyway, even if the, even if that was the case. Um, and, and yeah, this was because this, especially uh, in the case of kind of NATO, this is coming from a period where we and it is such a odd concept to wrap our heads around today. But this is coming from a place of deep asymmetric war fighting in terms of of uh, of conventional superiority. You know, the, there are the whole host of of uh, technological developments, not nuclear and non nuclear. Which come out of the Cold War on on the Western side is is a result of the general assumption, whether correct or not. I think there's a lot of reason to doubt, honestly. Um, now that we're seeing more about how the Soviet military was structured, but it's it's done with the assumption that Ivan has more guys than us, has far more tanks than us, has is better prepared, better armed, is ready to go quicker. Uh, we need things to kind of offset this this inferiority, and things like nuclear sabotage come into it, things like the the in fully integrated use of nuclear weapons within the conventional force structure, which is what the legacy NATO force structure is now. Um, gravity bombs mated with fighter aircraft, which is still kind of baffles my mind because it's sort of like, it's, it's, it's the most antiquated and bizarre form of, of uh, nuclear force structure you can operate. It's like, yeah, dumb gravity bombs being dropped from planes, or slightly better than dumb gravity bombs being dropped from planes. But it's like, it's like uh, given the give it being given the choice between a Ford Explorer and a really, 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 really good Model T. So yeah, it's really good, but it's still a Model T. I, I wanted to say about movies, like, what do you think about that that film i know there's a lot of films out there that discuss the specter of nuclear war um hunt for red october oh yes um sean connery displaying his finery in uh, scottish accent i that is i i just love a uh, dash vidania <laughs> doing this for mom's apple pie uh lots of things in there don't react well to bullets <laughs> <laughs> But no, it's the one thing that I thought was interesting is that like, while I know a lot of the products out of like Sevmash or, um, you know, especially the northern Russian ports, especially that built these total secret subs, 
We had good rundown pictures of Project 941 boats before they were finished, like the whole time. We were just like, oh, look, here's the stages of the building. Sorry, uh, Typhoon for the rest of you guys. Um, When you look at these boats and you start seeing the layers of them building and everything else, and then, you know, just like the movie does, and this is one of the occasional things that Tom Clancy got very right, is that, yeah, we have really good working intel of almost everything that's being built here in the West. We we typically see the stuff that's being made on and are guessing what the components are and how they work and what have you. I just think it's funny because, one, anything coming out of Sevmash not making a noise louder than a hairdryer makes me laugh my ass off. Because I've I have heard what a Russian submarine prop sounds like, and I have heard that the machine noises and engine noises that come off that, and when they're like, "Oh, it's perfectly quiet," and I was like, "You're telling me that whole crew has stopped making noise as well?" Yeah, <laughs> you you're saying the air recycling and everything else is just going to be like dead quiet for no re- no bullshit. But the thing that I wanted to bring up about that movie is that the submarine was built. For the purposes of a very sneaky initial first strike. And I remember as a kid saying, oh, well, if the enemy can't see you when they sneak up, they might be able to shoot first and not know. As an adult, having studied this sort of stuff for most of my life, I look back and I go, are you telling me that if we got clobbered out of nowhere from the Atlantic Ocean... That our response would be, I guess I don't know what happened. (laughs) Invade Canada, boys. It's time. They're the closest that they were the closest people. It was was off the Grand Banks. So obviously Canada did this with their maple syrup submarine fleet. And now I need to clobber them. Here we go, Canada. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I I realize as as an adult understanding the strategic balance of all this, I just start like giggling because I go, there's no way, no way that an accidental nuclear attack would just be seen or an incidental nuclear attack would just be seen as a one off. And there's no way that there wouldn't be immediate pressing retaliation upon confirmation of suspicion. And it would be one of those things of. Which boats of theirs went underwater and have not yet been tracked or reemerged? And could they be in this area? It's them. And then just everything, kitchen sink. But I was going to ask, when it comes down to depiction of nuclear war in film, which do you find is the most laughable trope or misconception? Oh, um, gosh, there's a lot, I mean, there are a lot of ones that, that get things really, really bad. Uh, and then just sort of badly wrong, both at the strategic level, but also in the physics of how these things work. Um, in terms of an actual war film, I would say probably the 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 one that that has kind of the the most ridiculous tropes uh, is I'm re- I'm 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 trying desperately not to dunk on uh, Bad Company with uh, Chris Rock and Anthony Hopkins in it. Because oh, that not, I forgot that existed. It's so bad, but it's not meant to be good, and I don't want to dunk on it. But it's because it's fun. But it, it's it's preposterous. There's nothing. I last watched it a few months ago. There is literally nothing they get right about nuclear weapons in the entire film. Uh, but it's meant to take place in that sort of sketchy post and kind of post Cold War nineties. Yeah, everything's possible kind of era. 
Um, but other than that, I would say it's it's probably got to be Hunt for Red October. Honestly, uh, just just for the there are there are so many underlying assumptions that are just kind of flat wrong and weird. Um, like for example, the 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 idea for one thing that uh, such a, that that the maiden voyage of a new submarine like that would would not be more scrupulously yeah. monitored. Um, not only that, the maiden voyage of anything. Leave it. They're like it's the maiden voyage of this. Remember in that movie where they say the cryo plan is broken, and they're in everything's just making noise. It would sound like that the whole maiden voyage, yeah. and then they would go back home and go. The following shit is so fucked. And then it would require three refits to get it to be three quarters of what was initially promised. Ships yeah, are which, like this. Which tell well, ships are like this in general, but it also tells you about where, where the kind of the, the grand priority of the of the Soviet Navy is in terms of the nuclear force structure. Because one of the that that kind of it's, it's interesting what you said about um, about sort of the, the the first strike mentality and the decapitation strike. Like, well, golly guys, what do we do now? It wouldn't surprise me if the Hunt for Red October had been made in the Soviet Union. I'd find that actually a lot more forgivable because the the attitude towards first strike and decapitation strike kind of terrifies the Soviet leadership. And it's this weird duality of below, like I said before, like below, below a certain kiloton range, they're happy to delegate. They're just part of the force structure. Once you start getting to the strategic nuclear forces, the Soviet leadership throughout the Cold War is intensely paranoid. They don't like submarines because once submarines get out of kind of communication range, they're either a bluff or you need certain delegative procedures in place, which they layered kind of bureaucracy on top of bureaucracy, on top of commissars, on top of guns, on top of bureaucracy to prevent. Um, but one of the reasons that you have like the INF treaty, which is a fascinating example of arms control treaty that bans something that both sides actually kind of care about, is that they are terrified of the 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 M twenty six Pershing two, uh, sorry, not the M twenty six Pershing two. The M twenty six Pershing is the tank. The Pershing two is the uh, short range ballistic missile or intermediate range ballistic missile, uh, which was the first of the hyper accurate IRBMs which the which the United States developed, and. They were so concerned about these things being deployed to Europe because they could take out the Kremlin and that that would functionally decapitate the capacity of the Soviet nuclear arsenal to respond that it encourages them to effectively invent the doomsday device from Strangelove. It doesn't work in quite the same way, but Perimeter is basically this sort of this system whereby... Uh, a, a, a telecommunication is sent to the to the Kremlin periodically, quite frequently, it's on the, on the level of every hour or so. Um, and if it's not met with the appropriate response, things happen in bunkers in the Ural Mountains that nobody wants to actually happen. Yeah, what what you're talking about for the listeners who don't know is what's called a dead hand system, which means. If you nuke me, I automatically retaliate because I have a system set up that even if there is not a living person in the command and control department, my systems being on standby and detecting the threshold for nuclear war will automatically command retaliation. Um, the perimeter system is the name of it. Some of you guys have seen parts of it, especially on the internet. 
UVB-76, the woodpecker, that is part of it. There are a lot of other sensors and many other transmitters that work out there, and you can go and find them. The dead hand system is very real. It's not a doomsday device. It's not, I will destroy the whole northern hemisphere. But it is enough nuclear weapons under its authority to certainly try. And there are other systems like this likely or logically in existence. This is the one we know about. This is the one that's been discussed. And this is the one that there is data supporting. But dead hand systems are another way of guaranteeing that the strategic deterrence of your nation doesn't even require... Well, you want to make sure, essentially, as you pointed out earlier, that decapitation is not even possible, and even attempted decapitation will result in an automatic, overwhelming response that will not be metered or measured by a human hand, but an uncaring and unthinking machine that will mash that button a hundred times out of a hundred until it is out of warheads. Yeah, pretty much. And with so, the, um, yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just, one of the things about the perimeter system that that I, that always um, made me laugh was this. It it sounds like something. It's a bit late. It comes later on, but it definitely sounds like something Khrushchev would have signed off on, because it uses missiles to solve problems, and not just. And I don't just mean the ICBMs within the system itself, but the launch mechanism is that bunker in the Ural Mountains fires a single ICBM whose whole function is to transmit radio signals to other ICBM installations. So it's the missiles are talking to each other, which is about as Khrushchev as it gets. Khrushchev loved missiles. He loved missiles. He was, he was, he was the guy who said, I will bury you. But he also said that we're going to make these like sausages. And they weren't wrong. Um, the, the absolute support of Koryalev's work and programs is, is what you see in Khrushchev. Now, when it comes down to really interesting notions of nuclear war and nuclear strategy, there's always the talk about these ideas of building giant world-glassing super bombs built out of Einsteinium and thorium and cobalt thorium and all of these other things. What would you like to comment on the notion of this science fiction, possibly science fact notion of building a world-ending nuclear weapon that can just in one hit make everything go away? Well, the thing with explosions is the bigger the one you have, the less efficient fundamentally it is. You're always better with smaller explosions to take out a larger target area. So, by definition, a big bomb is always going to, depending on what, if, if your target is to delete a large area, like the Earth, one big bomb is just about the last way you would want to do it. Um, but, that being said, and Tsar Bomba was kind of a test case of this, because Tsar um, for the, for those of you uh, who, you know, the five of you probably haven't heard of Tsar Bomba because it's one of those internet legends at this point. Uh, it's the largest bomb ever created. Um, it's a Soviet gravity bomb, parachute retarded gravity bomb, whose parachute was so huge it actually disru famously disrupted the Soviet textile industry to create this this thing. Uh, just just to kind of give the give the a give the crew a chance of surviving, which admittedly was a thoroughly secondary aim of it, but mostly to see to kind of slow the progress of the bomb to make sure that it didn't just shatter on impact. Um, it was meant to be a hundred megaton yield, which is equivalent of a hundred million tons of TNT. The end product was about fifty megatons, 
And the the reason it was 50 megatons rather than 100 is because that's literally the limit of the largest Soviet aircraft at the time. Yeah, they, they had to make special doors, more or less, to kind of go around it for the device. I, I saw all of the other preparation that was hilarious. Some people may not know this, but in the Western world, your British forces and certainly our American forces had all sorts of things like blast shields and shades that were reflective and special paint and all of this stuff on aircraft. One of the things I saw that the Russians had was just an eye patch. Yeah. Because you, you put the eye patch over one eye and then you fly with one eye. And if the flash blinds you, you can move the eye patch to the other eye and then just be like, all right, we're good. Like, that is the level of safety around the employment of nuclear weapons that some large militaries take. My man, if it works for pirates on boarding actions, why wouldn't it work? I know. Yeah. We just need well, to be we're, nuclear we're pirates, nuclear right? Fire. Um, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, the, I mean, Tsar Bomber was largely a publicity stunt, but it did, it did make the point that there is... In theory, no limit to how big you can make a bomb. The, the the only limitation is your supply of fissile material and your supply of HE and to an extent the sensors to get the HE to kind of go off in the in the manner that we talked about earlier to kind of get everything to implode. Those are your only limiting variables. There's no physical limitation on how big a bomb could be. There's a physical limitation on how big you want a bomb to be for things like anything like proportional destructive force to target for economic reasons, for reasons of, of kind of blast effect and so on. Um, one thing I, I did a bit of digging into was the idea of, of was, you know, what, because you and I both know how a lot of strategy guys think, right? Even if they're told, well, we're building the biggest bomb ever, it's largely going to be for publicity reasons. They're going to get together over a bottle of Stolly and start wargaming out scenarios in which they could use this thing. So uh, a couple of people in a, of, a, of a similar intellectual bent, uh, we kind of got together and, and uh, worked out how you would actually use this thing. And the best result I think we got was uh, a good friend of mine, Tom, became obsessed with the idea of dropping it on Yellowstone to crack the crust of the earth like a goddamn egg and drown the filthy capitalists in lava. I see. So his his what if Soviet scenario was was to blow open the Yellowstone caldera with Tsar Bomba and then and then have the super volcano do the rest of the Cold War work of of destroying the Western world. Interesting approach. Now my whole take on Tsar Bomba is very simple. Um, I would have probably just you tow it out to some island in French Polynesia and set it off just like the French set all theirs off out there. And then people ask why. And I'm like, I just want to see if this Godzilla thing happens because they theorized for a long time, all these effects would do something. Let's just bring the biggest one out there, clap those pots and pans together and see what happens. Now, if that doesn't work, we're going to just put the Godzilla thing to bed, right? Well, that would have the bonus advantage of drowning New Zealand as well. So I'm all for it. Oof. You know, there, there, that was one interesting thing that I know New Zealand had one of the weirdest elements of the nuclear world happen on its borders. One of the weirdest elements. 
And what it was, for most people don't know this, um, there was a group called Greenpeace, and they were trying to protest nuclear testing in French Polynesia, which the French were doing the shit out of all the way up until the testing limit. And uh, this boat said, we're going to go sail into the test site. And French Secret Service said, no, you're fucking not. Uh, you know, je m'appelle what? You know, they were they were a little bit upset at that. So they used a commando raid to blow the ship up in a New Zealand harbor and then escaped like Bond villains out to sea. Now, when that happened, New Zealand took such a strong stance on nuclear policy that ships with nuclear reactors are not allowed in their waters. They've made everything they can to make sure that no one comes near them with nukes anymore, which is kind of curious because they also got rid of their air force. So I'm not sure how they're going to like make that happen other than very strongly written letters or like, I guess, making making the enemy aware that if you hit us, you'll 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 lose the Lord of the Rings movie set. Like, I, I'm not sure how they're going to, you know, work their way around that. But very good luck to them. All of them. They're, they're, that, that is very bold. Getting rid of your Air Force is one of those in our line of work. Bold move, Cotton. Let's see how it plays out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, I, sus- I suspect the plan there is, is rely on Australia. Um, yes. Or, or that icebreaker that they insist on keeping at great expense for no particular good reason is actually going to... Um, Transformer itself into a small carrier. Possibly. I, you know, maybe, maybe they, maybe they don't want anyone to have nukes nearby because every nuclear boat has nuclear detection equipment and just little, little known fact that they, they've got like the world's sixth largest nuclear arsenal or something. They've just got it all hidden on the Lord of the Rings set. That's why they don't let anyone like fuck with it. It's just like the Hobbit houses come open and it's just a bunch of, IRBMs with cluster warheads and Mervs all jacked up with thorium and cobalt, and they're like, "Good day, mate." And then just Hobbiton as an as an ICBM silo is a thought I'm never going to be able to claw hammer out of my head. Look, look, Mister Frodo, it's the end of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Dun 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 dun, and then just silo hatches banging open. Tourists still taking photos because they don't know what's going on. Oh, that's what? new. Why is it in a world where the god of evil literally exists, can somewhere like the Shire exist? Strategic nuclear deterrence. Yeah, it's it's like Mordor is what happened to like the last people who fucked with Hobbiton. You know, they the Hobbiton. You know, the hobbits all come out and they're all happy, and you know, like one of the the black riders rides up with his shrouds and his you know his his horse that's just looks like death, and he's riding up, and they're like, oh, I don't care much for you, I don't, and just hit that button, and then they go back to Mordor, and it's just blasted hellscape. And they're like, there used to be grass here. <laughs> used to be used yeah. to be Mr. Frodo <laughs> that's sick but no uh they're they're way too happy for that setting they're they're way too happy like you know that's one thing that chat my ass about Lord of the Rings is the Shire looks so idyllic and beautiful and then you go look like 10 miles outside the Shire and everything is just shit it's just shit. By the time they get to like people towns, they're like, the roads are filthy and people are staggering around drunk and everyone's like body and loud and poorly dressed. But you know, 
the Shire is genteel, very Stepford Wives. Everyone's got a girlfriend or five. And, you know, everyone's got a big fat pig in their yard and lots of nice little things to eat and plenty of cheese. And I'm like, where does all that come from? What is their strategic deterrence? Why are they so smug? <laughs> well, yeah, and it and it's an example of, of just something that just wouldn't exist in the real world. It falls into the Thucydides trap, you know? The strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. In In any sensible world, the hobbits would be incredibly oppressed like oh god yeah they're, i mean they're tiny unified nation anymore they're tiny i mean they're, they're tiny in a world where there's orcs like it's why would anyone listen to what a hobbit says when you can like pick them up and just throw them like <laughs> just they're, they're sitting there like we're the mightiest and the bravest and the most truest of heart it's like yeah you're also about football sized and they just yeah. whip them into yeah. the woods you're, 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 you're also you're also pathetically weak and you've basically disarmed yourselves. The only way that people like that survive is by freeloading off stronger allies, basically. Um, which, which to be fair, we we have in the modern world. It's called NATO, and any any state outside of basically um, the US, France, and the UK. Spicy take. That's- to be fair, and and I'll I'll make an exception for my good friend uh, Doctor Brin's noble slovenia because they've got the optic side covered with you know i want to know more about the slovenian military you know that's the thing about the slovenian military i was giving him shit about it but if you go look up pictures of them they they look pretty much like starship troopers they've yeah. all the well, fnfs 2000 yeah they've they've got all the the cool gear and all the cool stuff there's not a lot of them but they all look really cool standing around with it. And I do agree. The bayonet mount on that thing is pretty much the greatest way to lose an eye. <laughs> because I've seen them march with them. And the bayonet point just wobbles around at like eye level. And I'm like, no, good lord. It just You'd have a whole commando unit of guys that look like solid snake. <laughs> just walking around like, why are we here? Why is the bayonet so sharp? I come. I come from a country that thought uh, commissioning the L eighty five into service was a good idea. I'm. I'm not saying anything when it comes to small arms. I'm gonna stick to my nukes. I remember. I remember when you guys used to make really good rifles, and you still do. Um, it, it's called Holland in Holland. They do really good work. Um, but but everyone else is just like, well, we broke this. Can we get HK to fix it? And HK's like, yes, yeah, that's going to be very expensive. <laughs> it. To be fair. To be fair. And as as a gunsmith, I'm sure you appreciate this. Heckler and Koch was technically owned by the British at the time. I I understand that, but that's I I can also point out many British things that are no longer owned by the British, oh, <laughs> like America, British aerospace. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, thirteen colonies of America. We never owned the big. The, we never we never got the jackpot. In fact, we actually refused to. It's one of the reasons of the of the War of Independence, isn't it? The the kind of the mandate that it won't go any further than the Appalachian Mountains. There's all sorts of things that people forget about the the original War of Independence. Namely, like most Americans don't know that you guys were also engaged in a lot of other shit at the time. That's the only reason why America had a shot at any of this was just because England had a lot of fish to fry. A lot of fish to fry around the world because they were a global empire. We were a very poor theater of it and not very really incredibly desirable either because it's like as much trouble as we were worth, 
we didn't make much more money than was required to justify your presence here. So as, as colonies went, we were fairly easy to let go. Well, it's, it's the, it's the problem of, of um, having a large garrison, uh, in so, which, which is not something that at any point, actually the, the, the British empire before or after did to any great extent uh, was to have kind of large enough garrisons to defend against a serious military incursion. So, and that, that's kind of, in many ways, the foundation of it, because this is kind of, and, and also it's a land army, which, which historically at this period we're not good at operating. There's this kind of big gulf between the sort of the First World War and um, John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough, uh, fighting the War of the Spanish Succession. That's kind of the gulf between us being good at land warfare. Um, the, the, the Wellington's kind of a massively overspoken about flash in the pan in the grand scheme of things. Uh, so, so fighting a land war, bad. Fighting it with lines of communication that long, bad. Fighting it against um, asymmetric forces who have who have embraced crazy madcap things like rifles, bad. Yeah, we like cheating. Massively misusing the the colonial loyalists as well. The the of which there were a very large number. We just terribly yes. misused. That's that's one thing people don't know about American history is largely America was split into three big camps during the revolution. Like a third did not give a fuck who was in charge. They just wanted to go on about their business. A third hated British rule and a third were pro-British rule. And you find that the middle group that wants to stay largely out of it pretty much stays largely out of it. Most towns and cities are like, oh, they're gone, cool, back to normal. Like, the war has moved on from here. We don't care. Because business is business. And a lot of people did business on either side. So that's kind of a interesting thing to study. Now, fucking trains. Now, one of the uh, questions I was going to end us with is there's always this thing that happens in science fiction movies, especially Alien Invasion. And I'm going to take one that I watched recently just to make sure I remembered it correctly. You have the movie Independence Day where the aliens come down and they all get in position and then they all just sit there and don't do much and then they all just start striking and then we just say, we're going to release one cruise missile and see how it goes. If you had to defend earth and you had aliens who were starting to get in position and acting very silent and mysterious, what would your response be as someone who has had hand in a lot of this nuclear stuff? And what would the tool selected be for your opening move? So opening move, Going on the basis of, of uh, multi-layered defense, uh, ICBM screen when they're in near-Earth orbit because not not so much for the for the damage per se. Well, two reasons really. Um, one because you might score some incidental hits. Maybe you know uh, they 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 may or may not be have defensive technology that's capable of kind of dealing with nuclear weapons. Odds are they've got a lot. Uh, of, of technology capable of, of swatting missiles more than perhaps dealing with nukes, but they would be. I would design that. I would. I would target them in such a way as to detonate short of that to see if I could leverage an EMP effect. Because if you're, and this is really assessing your fool's vulnerabilities. But if they're vulnerable to an EMP effect, you've got game. You can you can kind of play around with that. 
I think it's funny, and the reason I bring this up is some people would say, why mention movies is, is an effective measure of this? And the reason I say that is because most people know these movies and see these as representations of something that's fairly abstract, nuclear war, which usually we just have a lot of recollection of nuclear test footage. We also will throw in things from our vestigial memory like Chernobyl or many other things for radiation that really are kind of peripherally related to this stuff. But when it comes down to what a nuclear war is or is not, I like using the idea of an alien invasion because you have an enemy you know nothing about, you have no idea what's going to work, and you still have to make these same selections from your arsenal to achieve the same strategic aims. So alien invasion are really good what if. I think it's funny, though, in that movie that in the end, nukes were the answer. They, they they were just like, what if we got one inside and then just try it again? However, I disagree with the movie's ending where they, they would have used something that small. I think they would have been like, you know what? If you're going up there, let's let's go dust off one of these H-bombs we got. Something a little more vintage or classic. Yeah, a little, a little spicier. Certainly, you'd borrow something from the from the Soviet side of things, if there's anything going, because one of one of the problems with always having an edge in guidance technology, it's that the, the yield threshold of, of US nuclear forces is so much lower. I mean, not just talking about like Zob, Zob Bomber or anything like that, but the, 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 in the sort of high cold war, the Soviet Union routinely deploys weapons in the re, in the region of sort of 15, 20 megatons, whereas kind of the highest I think the US gets is about nine. Uh, and it's a, it's, it's um, not a gravity bomb. It's a. I need to check which which uh, weapon it's mated to, but it's it's not in service very long either. And it's it's because it's hey, you know what? If you're more accurate, you don't need to you don't need the weapon to be as big. You know, there's that kind of sense of proportionality. But yeah, certainly that that's that's how you would deal with like with that alien invasion. You're gonna go with something bigger than just. I mean, what is it they're actually using? It's not even cruise missiles, is it? It's basically sidewinders. Yeah, they they have like a tiny little bomb they take up there on an external mount. And I was like, no, you would have something the size of a steamer trunk with a bunch of wires hanging out of it. And then like a, a control book and Cyrillic. And you're sitting there with that three ring binder just going like, all right, all right. Do we have these lights on? You know, okay, uh, yeah, okay, we've got a test line. All right, key in. All right, key to starting. Okay, it needs a five. What is this, a diesel engine? And you're sitting there flipping through it. What do you mean this error code? You turn the key about ten times, and then it goes off. But Have him lean outside the <laughs> cockpit and hit it with a wrench three times. Yeah, just it, it. You gotta, you gotta shake it. It needs a little bit of shaking. It's been in storage since Stalin. It's, it's a little old. It's grumpy. It's, you got like a broomstick. You just like kick, 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 making it work, but although have you have you considered that with Independence Day, right? That the the Sidewinder missile is just the primer for Randy Quaid's ball. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, it's I I love I love the I love that movie, even though it's really stupid. It's it's a really good movie. I I I love that movie, even though it's incredibly stupid on a lot of its precepts. But I I like it because it's like, hey, we're all in this together, and it's one of the few movies that does the humanity fuck yeah message in a way that's not demeaning or Star Trekky. Like we all became wise at the same time for no reason. 
I, I love that sequence where they show guys sending, you know, teletexts and telegrams to each other using the telex lines and hard lines to just sit there and beep out in Morris like, hey, we're going to hit him at this time. And I think that's one of the most accurate parts of the movie is, yes, the military forces once defeated would disperse and wait until they could try to get a more decisive strike. There's no such thing as wiping out the whole military in one go. They will distribute and go to the hills, which is something I do give them bonus points on. Now, is go oh, ahead. Really, I find it interesting that the remnant of the Royal Air Force appears to be operating in a desert, which actually is is totally <clears throat> totally on brand uh, for for what the the at a certain point in time, anyway, the British would have done, which is kind of dispersed to various colonial bases, whether it's in Jordan, Cyprus, or so on. Now, as we are nearing the end of this podcast, I I know I know you're going to tell this story, but uh, we have to get back to Vera Lynn and Doctor Strangelove and a certain academic dance, I believe, uh, that you and Ross were part of. Would you mind telling that story as a story of excellence in academia? Oh yeah, absolutely. So there's a <clears throat> uh, Ro- Ro- for those who would, well, actually nobody would know this, but Ross and I, uh, who has been on the podcast before, uh, were at university together. We did our master's degrees together, uh, and we took a course on nuclear weapons together. And it's a it's a re- relatively small course, and there's a component to it which requires a presentation. <laughs> yeah. And we're kind of sick of university courses which require a presentation. You know, they're, they're kind of... You, you act like a stuffed shirt for five minutes, you try desperately not to read off a script, and you kind of just let words garble out. We decide we're going to do something different. So I... We decide we're going to go to this uh, as an homage to Doctor Strangelove. So Ross is dressed in... What I, what I can only describe as the um, kids' cosplay version of Jack Ripper's uniform. Ross is, Ross is part Dutch. He's a very tall man. So this is... It looks at least two sizes too small on him at this point as well, which is just hilarious. Uh, so he's sort of standing there in this flight suit come uniform uh, type thing, just sort of hitting space bar silently. Whilst I'm in a borrowed wheelchair, in a suit... I've got- <laughs> My, my 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 sister's a professional makeup artist, so she gets me done <coughs> black and white. I've got a powdered wig, oh and my god, a single leather glove, and a cigarette. I smoke. So you're time. doing you're doing Doctor Strangelove, and he's doing, I'm doing cool Doctor Strangelove. All right, and I carry out the entire presentation in this sort of full German accent. It's like. Yes, uh, the capability of centrifugal <laughs> it would be within the grasp of even the smallest nuclear power. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I, I, ironically enough, I actually think it was it was um, <clears throat> it was on nuclear proliferation that we were talking about. And I was leaning really hard into f- fun fact, kids. Uh, Iran is is one of those states that we think of as a nuclear breakout state. It's on the edge. If you were to take a country that that is going to be, you know, if you, if they decided they want to be nuclear, they could have a bomb within six months. It's Germany, Germany and Japan. Germany less so now because they've shut down a lot of their nuclear infrastructure. But at the time, they hadn't. Uh, so so we were talking about nuclear latent states, and it's like yes, we can revive. 
Our ambitions. We we can revive our ambitions to be the great power in Europe, and we can have our Libans. Sorry, Mr. President. No, we won't talk about this anymore. And you know, just kind of going through it like that. Um, and we end it with the kind of the classic sort of strange love ending of my Fury. I can walk. I stand up. Ross stands up, kind of having looked bored for most of the presentation, slams on the Vera Lynn, and we just dance down the aisle of these two rows. So uh, you do you do verbatim ending of Doctor Strangelove. Peter Seller Peter Sellers, one of his greatest roles. For those of you who don't get what we're referencing, Doctor Strangelove, go watch it. It is one of Kubrick's greatest films. And this is a verbatim performance from it. And then you guys decide to dance out to We'll Meet Again by Vera Lynn. Yeah, we, we dance up, we, da- we dance down kind of the, the if you imagine a kind of typical lecture theater, we sort of dance down the rows. Uh, we, we end next to, <laughs> next to it. We didn't plan this, but it was funny. We, end, we, we, we ended up next to this uh, Danish guy, Tease, who was sort of, you know, eight foot tall, four foot wide, and he's kind of cringing because these two guys in makeup are dancing next to him. Uh, and we just sort of, yeah, skedaddle out of the room. And then we'd planned to kind of go back in and uh, and just, you know, kind of take our our review, our um, kind of questions from the class. It's like, yeah, but it's going to be such an anticlimax going back in. Why don't we just go to the pub for a pint and wait and see how long they wait? Oh, so, no. Yeah, it was vanished. <laughs> how long did they wait? Uh, we got a text from another guy in the class like five minutes later saying, like, are you guys actually coming in? It's like, no, if you want to finish this class, finish it in the pub because we've done our side. You can come to us to do yours. I think that that is a wonderful fucking story. Remember, kids, nuclear war doesn't have to be terrifying. It can be dramatically theatrical. And you can end it in the pub if you want. You now, is this is the end of the podcast. Any messages you want to spread out there? Anything nice you want to say to the audience? Anything, any wisdom, any commandments you wish to share with the world? The time is yours. Fair enough. Um, if you're interested in this subject, the, the whole limited nuclear war stuff and that kind of thing. Uh, I would definitely recommend checking out uh, Herman Kahn's uh, On Thermonuclear War. It's it's about the size of a headstone, but it definitely gives you a, a good idea of what we're talking about. Um, that said, if you, on the other side of things, just want to have fun estimating how many casualties would come from a nuclear strike in your area, uh, Alex Wellerstein's nuke map is phenomenal. It combines uh, the technology of Google Maps with a decent knowledge of nuclear physics to create this sort of nuclear detonation simulator. And it's... uh, feel bad saying it's great fun, but it's great fun. It's one of those things where it's like with any, any toy, you're like, oh my god, this is terrible. Wow, this is fun. I mean, if, if you are a sick fuck enough to play with Surgeon Simulator, this is up your alley. This is, this is definitely no worse than playing Theme Hospital. <laughs> this is certainly up there. It's just larger stakes. It's, it's the granularity of Nuke Map which gets me. It's like, what effects do you want? Do you want burn effects? First degree, second degree, third degree, all degrees. You can have them all. 
it, it will it, it goes down to to quite uh, quite an interesting level of detail. Indeed, it do. All right. Well, thank you for joining, Doctor David. And as always, I remember you can downvote a podcast, but I really don't give a fuck. I'm going to keep making those. Thanks for being my friend, pal. Thanks, bud.